that you made it to our 10th show episode. Yay! Unbelievable that this is already our 10th episode. And we are celebrating the grand finale of our very first season here with you today. Hence our little party hats, you get it? When we started this event adventure in, I think, early May, we were super nervous. Who would watch and if we could solve the technical issues? But we kind of did. Now, 10 weeks in, it almost feels like we get a little bit of routine. And used to the fact that we are not talking to an audience of hundreds of heads, but to a little light in the camera. <laughs> hundreds of people from around the world have watched us live and in our YouTube channel so far. And we're super happy that this is the case. And we hope that we're able to introduce some ideas, some new thinking and interesting thoughts to you so far. So for those of you who are watching for the first time, who are we? Monique. I'm Monique from Dusseldorf. I'm a conference curator based in Amsterdam. And well, lately I've been hosting online events. It's a new job for me, but uh, conference and events, that's where I'm at. Hi everyone, I'm David Matten. Uh, I'm a newsletter writer and trend watcher, um, dialing in from London and just yeah, enjoying the chance to wear a spiffy little hat. <laughs> And I'm Ina Faslotzer, I'm working at Zina Schrade, an agency and company part of the Global Accenture Interactive family. I'm responsible, among other things, for everything to do with the next conference and content creation. And with me in our Hamburg studio, here's our producer Stefan Sonnabend. You can't see him, but he's the wizard behind the scenes, so to speak. And today we have the great pleasure of welcoming Efosa Ojomo to our show. He leads the Hi. Global Prosperity hey. Research Group at the Clayton Christensen Institute for Disruptive Innovation, a think tank based in Boston and Silicon Valley. Efosa was a speaker at Next19, and we are super glad to have him back. So Efosa, thank you so much for joining the show today. From where are yeah. you calling in? It's my pleasure. I'm calling in from Boston, Massachusetts. Fantastic. Uh, and how has life changed for you since we met last time in September? Uh, yeah, so I think uh, maybe the biggest thing that has changed happened a couple of days ago. My wife and I are fostering a 17-month-old uh, child, and that's, um, I haven't slept much in a couple of days. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank God you for joining parents, kudos to you. I don't know how you do it. <laughs> We are looking forward to hearing from you in a bit, but before that, we start our little conversation. I would like to hand over to David and Monique for our picks of the week. Thank you. Thanks, Inna. Right, I'm going to de-hat. I don't need my hat for this bit. Um, okay, picks of the week. Now, the big story I saw this week is the story that TikTok are pulling out of Hong Kong over concerns about Chinese interference in the city. So we've all seen, all you guys out there have seen, that China is moving to increase its control over Hong Kong. It recently passed laws that mean that political activists can be transferred to the mainland um, for trial. Lots of people say this is a move by China to increasingly integrate Hong Kong into 
the mainland. And this is raising huge concerns for a number of big tech players who now fear that operating in Hong Kong is essentially going to mean operating in China. So it's going to mean obeying the strict uh, Chinese censorship rules and it's going to mean sharing data with the Chinese government. And that's a big problem for big tech because the US is very keen that platforms that operate across the US do not share data with the Chinese government. Now, TikTok is actually owned by a Chinese company called ByteDance, but ByteDance has always been super keen to make it very clear that the version of TikTok that operates across the rest of the world is totally separate to the version of TikTok that operates within China that's called Douyin. Okay, there's a sharp divide between those two, or at least that's the way they want it to be. Uh, now it looks like that's not possible if, you, if you're operating in Hong Kong, and that's why TikTok are pulling out of Hong Kong. And it's not just TikTok. Facebook, Google, and Twitter all recently stopped responding to requests for user data from the Hong Kong government because of their concerns that it will be shared, that data will be shared with the Chinese government. Okay, so you can see the big picture story that's evolving here. I mean, right now, this is a story about TikTok and Facebook and Google and Hong Kong, but it's not hard to see where all this is heading. If these trends continue to evolve, you can start to see the emergence of a world that is genuinely split down the middle or an internet that's genuinely split down the middle between the Chinese internet, China and its allies and its internet, and the US, the West and its allies and its internet. And because the internet is woven through everything we do now, it's woven through our individual lives, our collective lives, our politics. If the internet is split down the middle, that means you have a world, I would argue, that is split down the middle. And all this becomes very interesting and very difficult politically pretty quickly. Um, that is the big scenario I think that science fiction writers should be focusing on right now. A future where the world is split down the middle between a Chinese internet uh, and a Western, so to speak, internet by this huge firewall. The implications are endless. It's a massive story uh, that's going to get way, way bigger than just TikTok. Uh, what do you think about all that, Monique? Europe. We need Europe. Europe does things differently. But anyway, I've got some stories as well. I wanted to revisit some of the, the developments that we actually spotted over the last few weeks. Um, where, when it comes to where do people gather online when they're stuck at home? Because we're in a lockdown world and it's not going to go away soon. Or you know, we'll have lockdowns probably for a while to go. Um, so um, we discussed before, uh, you know, Animal Crossing, New Horizon, people that gather there. It's a game set on an island. The new release makes you it makes it possible for the players to swim and dive. So the controversy now is you can actually swim around somebody's island and enter forbidden property. I mean, there's a whole thing going on about that this week. And of course, you also have Fortnite, you know, two and a half years old, now has 350 million players. It was 250 million last year. So this coronavirus has done a world of good and it's transforming into a social platform with the in-game cinema and performances and lots more. But anyway, some of these worlds stay with us for a very long time. So the example that I've brought along here is actually The Sims. 
Now, The Sims is a game that was first released 20 years ago, sold nearly 200 million copies worldwide. And um, this is a story that I picked up from the insider. Content makers have been getting pretty creative and have started to build a world that reflects the new reality of the pandemic era. So in this case, Blondie Simmer, she's a creator on, on The Sims. She has created a series of quarantine vlogs. And in the game, she's role-playing out the pandemic. She creates cinematic videos of Sims following the medical advice of many health authorities around the world, being socially distant and wearing masks and... I just thought it was very interesting that this world is also our world. Now, the next example is uh, Roblox. I mean, that's a game that's been around since 2006 and it's mainly geared for kids, you know, between 9 and 14, over 100 million monthly active users. And the BBC reported that players started to get in-game messages urging them to support Trump in the November vote. Hacked avatars have been dressed in existing in-game accessories that resemble items worn by Trump supporters. I mean, no end to the creativity of people, right? So uh, a hat that looks like a MAGA hat is now used, and a t-shirt featuring an American eagle. So 2020, this one. Anyway, I've got a Trump story for you as well, a digital Trump story. Um, and that's the next story. So you can see the next asset. Um, that's the world of online worlds. What about the real world, the physical world, where walls keep us apart? So Donald Trump was hoping. Now, even these walls are going digital, and this is such a strange story. I mean, Democrats wanted this all along. You say, you know, why can't we use other tools in the physical wall? And the Trump administration has awarded a major border security contract to use artificial intelligence on an unprecedented scale to create a virtual wall along the border with Mexico. And I'm quoting here, hundreds of solar-powered mobile surveillance towers with cameras and thermal imaging will detect moving objects and feed an artificial intelligence system capable of distinguishing among animals, humans, and vehicles, and sending location and mapping information right to the cell phones of US patrol agents. It's a solution. Now, guess who founded the company that won this contract? Seriously. Underrill, the company's founder, is 27-year-old Palmer Lucky. Remember that name? He sold his VR company Oculus to Facebook for $3 billion in 2014. I mean, it's not, you cannot make this up. Uh, entertainment going full surveillance in this case. Now, I've got some more beautiful news as well. As I said, I'm, I'm, you know, as an events person, obsessing about where people meet online and how they do it. And here's an example um, that was made by... Christian Miolo Claire and his team at Walt Binair. He was also a speaker last year at the next conference. Um, what he presents now is work in progress, and it's a new technology to experience endless virtual spaces and social environments for humans to enjoy together. And you know, with the sensibility of an artist, this becomes much more enjoyable than what we've seen so far in all these online tools. So this should run on every device and should really run live interaction on creative planets. Now, I love it and I fully intend to make use of it as soon as possible. And, and the last but not least, very short mention, uh, Punch Drunk, which some of you will know is a theater company. They do big theater experiences. Live theater experience where you go into a building and you're surrounded by everything, the stories they've made up. They just closed the huge deal with Niantic, the company behind Pokemon Go which, of course, is about interaction and digital and physical worlds. So I find it super interesting that those huge entertainment and event companies are now looking at the artist to help guide them where we go next. That was my story for this week. 
Absolutely fascinating. I think we should contact uh, Punch Drunk about an immersive what's next. <laughs> uh, Roblox what's next mashup, maybe, <laughs> for, you know, for the future. I mean, imagine well, that. Well, swim, swim and dive as well, right? Exactly. Oh, exactly. Yeah, okay. okay, look, two final stories from me that I really wanted to share. The first one, pretty quickly, just caught my eye. Guess who is missing the office in these times of lockdown most? It's not actually the people we expected it to be. It's not the older workers. It turns out it's the younger ones, the ones who were petitioning for ages for permission to work from home, who are missing the office the most these days. There was a recent survey in April of a thousand workers in the US and over 70% of Gen Z and 60% of millennial workers said they felt less connected to what's going on at work and they felt sadder about not being able to go to the office. Only about 50% of the older workers said that. I mean, when you think about it, it's not actually that hard to see why it might be the younger people who are most uh, upset and most missing the office. After all, many of them are the ones sort of cramped, you know, three or four into a small flat. No one's got their own desk. Uh, you know, it's a chaotic environment to work in. And also they're the ones most in need of the kind of mentorship and informal knowledge sharing and conversation that you only get in an office. But it is an interesting reversal that just caught my eye because the trendy startups used to be trying to lure, you know, the younger workers with promises of flexible working you know, which essentially means lots of working from home. Now the trendy startups might be the ones having to say, we have an office, we still have an office left um, and you can come to the office and you can work in it. Uh, okay, final story that I wanted to share with you guys that I just had to share because I saw this week. There's a well-known YouTuber uh, called Mr. Beast. Loads of you, I guess quite a few of you will have heard of him already. He has like 35 million subscribers on YouTube or something ridiculous like that. He's done a number of insane stunts over the years, including saying the name, he took a video of himself saying the name of another YouTuber, Logan Paul, 100,000 times in a row. It took him 17 hours. You can go to the YouTube and, and watch that video. Yeah, this, that's how this guy got famous with stunts like that. His most recent stunt was a collaboration with an agency called Mischief, and it was a game called Finger on the App. And basically what they did is they built a special app, and the game is really simple. Everyone starts playing at a certain time, and the last player to take their finger off the app, to take their finger off their phone screen, uh, is the winner, and the prize is $20,000. So there were like hundreds of thousands, millions of simultaneous players all started touching their phone screens, started touching this app at the same time, hoping to win the $20,000. Again, go to YouTube, check out Finger on the app. You can see the insane like live streams all these kids took of themselves holding this app for like five, six, seven hours at a time. In the end, Mr. Beast had to call off the competition early when three players went 12 hours straight just holding their finger on this app. And he was concerned that someone was going to do themselves some serious damage because they hadn't like slept for 12 hours. So he called it off early. All three players won $20,000. I mean, I just had to I just had to share that with someone. That is where lockdown has brought us. You know, we're 30 years deep into the Internet. And this is what we're using it for, to hold our finger on a phone screen for 12 hours in a row. But we're only human. We're only human. Monique, how long do you think you could hold your finger on your phone screen for continuously? Well, I need to refresh every three seconds, right? So, you know, <laughs> I'm addicted. No way. Um, okay. 
Well, that's enough about that. Now it's time for the next part of the show. And this week, our star guest is the world leading disruptive innovation expert, Efosa Oyomo. And Efosa leads the Global Prosperity Research Group at Clayton Criticism, as we mentioned, a think tank based in Boston and Silicon Valley. Um, he also wrote a book, The Prosperity Paradox, How Innovation Can Lift Nations Out of Poverty, together with Clayton Christensen, who is no longer with us, unfortunately. Ifosa teaches at Harvard Business School, consults with a roster of amazing clients, and speaks all over the world, well, from Boston, he says, and he's here to talk to us about the three different types of innovation that you need to understand. So, roll the credits. Hi, hi, hi. It's good to see you guys. <laughs> it is. I, mean, I think we first are going to ask the audience a question, right? Is this how we start this? If also, what do you want to ask our audience? And you right. can ask the question in the chat. So there you go. Let's do a quick poll. Uh, you know, many of you are familiar with the company Tesla. Uh, Tesla, it's an electric vehicle company. And the question is, is Tesla a disruptive innovation? Uh, when you compare it to, you know, all the other car makers out there. Is Tesla a disruptive innovation? Okay. Yes or no question? You have 50% probability of getting it right. <laughs> so, I like those odds. <laughs> I think of all yeah, the people quick. that are watching right now. Okay, we'll hear the answer of that to that question later on. But first of all, you say there are three different types of innovation. Explain. Yes, uh, so I'm pretty sure if, if we asked the uh, folks listening, you know, what is innovation? What does it mean to you? We would have so many different answers and they would sort of all point to the same thing, high tech, uh, technological advancement, uh, new features, uh, Silicon Valley, and all those things relate to innovation. Uh, but they're not as helpful when we think about what innovation is and the types of innovations. Um, and so the three main types of innovation uh, that are out there are efficiency, sustaining, and disruptive or market-creating innovations. So the first is efficiency, right? Efficiency innovations are innovations that enable us to do more uh, with less. And so think about you as a uh, product manager or a manufacturing manager or the CEO of a firm. And someone who works for you comes and says, hey, there's this process we've been doing. I think we can do it a lot more efficiently. Uh, we'll save on costs uh, and we'll be able to get the products to customers uh, at a lower cost. So that way we get more money as a company. An example of this uh, would be you know, outsourcing operations, for instance, if you're in manufacturing, maybe you say, let's let's make this in a, in a different place uh, for, for less money. Uh, and another example of an efficiency innovation would be automation, right? So you say, let's, let's actually get these uh, mechanical electronic devices to automate this process and we'll be able to do it at a much uh, lower cost. Now, efficiency innovations are important because they keep your company vibrant, uh, but, but when you think about it, they, they, they release cash flows for companies uh, and they don't really expand the market, right? Because you sell the products to existing customers. 
Um, and so at best, they give you a short-term advantage before other companies develop their own efficiency innovations. The second type of innovations are what we call sustaining innovations. Sustaining innovations are innovations that make good products better. And so these innovations are typically targeted at high-end uh, customers who just can't get enough performance from existing products. So examples would be, you know, when you get a new uh, smartphone, uh, when you have a better camera, uh, when you have a better memory on the phone, a uh, much bigger, uh, faster processor, um, and you have new features like uh, you know, facial recognition and so on. These are called sustaining innovations. They make good products better. Now, sustaining innovations, much like efficiency innovations, keep organizations vibrant, exciting, and you know people want to work there. But again, they target the existing market that can consume the products. And so typically it doesn't expand the market. So when I'm in a sustaining innovation battle with my competitors, I'm really fighting for market share, right? I'm fighting for market share with other companies that are serving those customers. Now, the third type of innovation are what we call market creating innovation, um, or in some cases, disruptive innovations. These are innovations that transform complicated and expensive products into products that are simple and affordable. So many more people who historically did not have access uh, to those products can actually get access to these products. Now, here's the unique thing about these types of innovations. They expand the market. And so these innovations are not targeted at the existing consumers who have the money, have the time, have the skill, expertise to afford the existing products on the market. These innovations are targeted at uh, what we call non-consumers, right? These are people who would benefit from gaining access to the products, but due to barriers that prevent them from consuming, uh, they can't get access. And these barriers are typically money, uh, access, of, of, of availability. So the product is just not available where they are, time, and skill. Uh, these prevent non-consumers from gaining access to, uh, to these products. So if you take a look and just step back as a, an executive, uh, a product manager, and, and look at the R&D uh, engagement at your organization and ask yourself, huh, what um, if, you know, because you have a portfolio of innovations that you're investing in, right? You have engineers and uh, product designers working on different types of innovations. If you have to categorize what buckets would you put these different types of innovations and your projects that you're doing, right? Um, and what we find is many companies, a vast majority, spend most of their resources on efficiency and sustaining innovations. And very few spend on the disruptive or market creating innovations. But that's really where the new growth engines reside in your organizations. Um, so I'll stop there and hopefully you have a good idea of the different types of innovations. Um, and you now have a framework that can help you think through 
you know, the portfolio of investments you have in your organization. Uh, and if you're actually developing new disruptive and market creating innovations or not. If you think of those innovations, because I know you've, you've, you've done a lot of work on uh, prosperity and, and, you know, making sure that countries get more prosperous uh, all over the world. Um, are specific kinds of innovations coming from specific areas? Would you say Silicon Valley does more, uh, creates more markets, uh, mm. Europe is more on efficiency, or can you make a difference? Is there a geographical difference in the innovation focus? Yeah, so that's, that's an excellent question, um, but it's tough to categorize uh, geographically, but if you, know, if you put a gun to my head and said, hey, you got to give me an answer right now, um, then I would say many uh, countries in, 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 in the West, uh, you know, oh, and, and many are in the OECD countries, or if we just say Silicon Valley, um, there's a lot of sustaining innovations going on in Silicon Valley. So, you know, you, you take, you know, David was talking about this new game company where you put your your hand on your smartphone and you hold it for how long? I mean, that's just crazy, right? When you think about that, if you had to categorize that type of innovation, that would fall under the sustaining innovation track because it's targeted at people who already have a smartphone. They can afford it. They're looking for new experiences, uh, new ways to interact with the phone and users out there with the internet, right? If you don't have a smartphone, if you don't have access to the internet, there is no way you can interact and interface with that innovation. So if you step back, you can see that many, the vast majority of innovations are sustaining and efficiency. And Silicon Valley is excellent at uh, sustaining uh, innovations. Now we are seeing that efficiency innovations typically arise within the context of an organization. So every, every company does efficiency innovations. But if I had to say, these are the regions where you have a majority of efficiency innovation that I would have to go out east, right? I would have to go out to China. I would have to go out to uh, maybe even Vietnam, uh, Cambodia, uh, because these companies, uh, these, sorry, these countries have uh, uh, many companies uh, that take processes uh, and can sort of do them uh, more efficiently or at uh, lower wages. And so companies can sell the products, right, yeah. to existing consumers, but make uh, more money. So they, you, know, you might design it in Hamburg or, 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 or Silicon Valley, but you tend to make it uh, somewhere, somewhere else. Uh, Mexico is another country where there's a lot of efficiency innovations. In terms of the disruptive and market-creating innovations, interestingly, we're also we're seeing a lot of these coming out of um, Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, we're seeing coming out of uh, Latin, Latin America, um, and this makes sense because these innovations are connected to the struggles of non-consumers. Right? These are people that don't have access to existing products and services. One example that many of your, your uh, listeners might be familiar with is uh, just 
financial services through your mobile phone. Yeah. Right. That was an innovation that really got its start out of Kenya, East Africa. Now, many other emerging economies are holding on and grabbing, latching onto it. Uh, so if you look at Brazil, you have a company called New Bank that that is one of the fastest growing uh, fintech companies uh, in that country and in that region. It's giving people access to financial services who in their wildest dreams would have never been able to get to a bank, open up an account, figure out that know your customer. You know, it's just there's a lot of non-consumption going on. Um, so now the, the last thing I'll say is no one company or no one country uh, does just one exclusive type of innovation, right? I think that's, you know, we always have a portfolio of these within our companies and our countries. The key is how do we make sure we have processes that help us prioritize market creating innovations and disruptive innovations? I think that's the key because the sustaining and efficiency innovations, they're always going to happen. Uh, they, you know, nobody, nobody gets fired for saying, hey, I think we should put a faster processor on the smartphone, or I think we should put a better camera, or I think we can do this and, do, and save, you know, 10% of our costs. And that'll mean our bottom line increased by 10%. Nobody gets fired for that. But if you don't have processes in your organization that help you learn uh, which customers you're ignoring, uh, which customers might want to engage with your product and services, but have no no money, no time, and it's just difficult for them to do it, then ultimately what's going to happen to you is what happened uh, to Blockbuster. Um, and, and so, you know, Blockbuster, the video rental company, they focused on having stores, having people come in and rent videos. Netflix comes around and says, let me figure out a, a different model to serve uh, people who can't access uh, Blockbuster. And now the, the, the rest is history. So, so I am super keen to ask you a couple of questions. I mean, we have an audience full of, you know, innovators of business professionals watching. So I'd love for you to tell us uh, which big industries or well, even which small industries too, you think are all set to be disrupted right now. Yeah. Who are the big industries all set to be disrupted and related to that? Yeah. Like, like, what are the big opportunities you see? If you're a digital innovator out there watching this right now or a product manager or whatever, where's the big open spaces you see that innovators should be moving into? Yeah. I, 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 brilliant. So I'm going to give one sort of overarching comment and then a couple of industries. The overarching comment is this, and, and this comment has been expedited by COVID-19 and what we're all experiencing. If you work at a company where any of the value you create can be digitized, you have to digitize it now. Uh, you have to digitize it. That's where the world is going. And so an example of that is if you work for a healthcare company, for instance, and the engagement between the healthcare professional and the patient can be digitized, you have to figure out a way to digitize it because that's where the world is going, right? Now, obviously, you may not be able to digitize 
you know, physical like diagnoses and things like that yet, but that's essentially where the world is going. So just sort of a general trend is if any of the operations within my company's business model can be digitized, I got to figure out a way to do it, the, the value we're creating. And so that's, that's one that's been expedited uh, by COVID-19. And so when you really take that model, right, and you say, okay, let's start applying it to sectors and industries, financial services, that's going to be disrupted. Banks in 50 to 100 years will look vastly different than banks look today, largely because a lot of the value that banks offer can be digitized. And so the idea of walking into a branch, the idea of writing checks, the idea of having conventional bank accounts and so on, we're going to see a lot of disruption in that space. Uh, when you look at education, uh, especially higher education and supplementary ancillary services connected to education, there's going to be a lot of disruption in that space. I don't know if this is similar in, in Europe, but in the U.S., uh, the cost of education has been growing exponentially, and it's almost uh, uh, not, not laughable, but it's, it's, it's so exorbitant that most, most people can't afford it. There's a ton of student loan uh, 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 debt uh, that, that, that we have. It's a student, student loan, I, I think, crisis. Um, and part of that is they, the, edu the education, higher education in this instance, has not kept up with innovation. Now, there's a, an organization called Southern New Hampshire University that has been offering a lot of innovative ways, right, to deliver content and knowledge and to build a network of, for its alumni. Um, but we will see education going in that direction. Um, and as we already see it with COVID-19, many schools are saying, we're going to only offer online uh, learning come uh, this this fall, right? Um, so financial services, definitely uh, healthcare, uh, education, some components uh, of it, um, and I, I think those those are the main three. But if you just take sort of that general comment about what components in my business model where I create value, can I digitize? Uh, you you really have to begin thinking about doing that today. Thank you. Yeah, and there's a, actually there's a question from the audience that is pretty much my second big question to you. Um, Uta from the audience, I hope I'm saying that right, says, how can you escape the trap of sticking to efficiency and sustaining innovations if you're in a big company? You know, how do big companies give themselves the best chance of being disruptive? You know, that's it's the holy grail, right? It's very that, hard. To yeah, that's that's a that's a um, yeah, it's a simple question, but it's the reason why you know the only mainframe computer company that was able to actually make personal computers was IBM, right? I mean, most of the uh, computing companies today didn't exist 30, 40, 50 years ago, right? Uh, so it may seem like a simple question, but it's critical. Um, and when you look at computing companies, most of them miss the boat on the smartphone, right? It was only Apple uh, that, that did. And, and, and so it's, it's, it's incredibly difficult. The way that you do it uh, is 
if we look at the folks who have done it, what they did was understood that we are going to be serving an entirely different customer set. So we need different processes and we need different metrics to measure success. Every company measures success a certain way. Um, if you don't sort of carve out a separate unit and say, you use this separate unit, you are going to focus on creating a new market for these non-consumers over here. And we're going to learn what the new metrics of success are. It's going to be incredibly difficult. Um, and so there are practical ways and tools you can do it. There's a book called Dual Transformation uh, written by uh, Scott Anthony that talks about how do you manage the existing business, which is very important, and then your cash cow, with creating a new disruptive business. Uh, so this notion of dual transformation, uh, he talks about that uh, in that book. Um, but, but I think one, one other thing related to that is, um, and this may sound simple, but you know, uh, if you look at your calendar um, and all the meetings and all the time you're spending is on the existing sustaining and efficiency innovation businesses, that tells you what you're doing, right? So that's sort of a crude, easy way to look and say, um, I need to spend at least 10 or 20% of my time uh, and resources on disruptive innovations and just budget it. So. Time and money. I, I have another question. Um, you have written about the jobs to be done uh, yeah. mission. I mean, this is a different way of looking what your customer needs, basically. Can, can you explain what, what the principle is and also you know, what it means now, but especially what is it? Yeah, so um, Peter, Peter Drucker, who is just a, a famous um, uh, uh, management <laughs> theorist, uh, said the customer rarely buys what companies think they're selling. Uh, Todd Levitt, who was a professor at Harvard Business School, said, you know, customers that buy drills, they don't want a quarter-inch drill. They want a quarter-inch hole, right? And so it's sort of getting behind the, the reason why do customers buy the products that we're selling them. And there's a, a story that, uh, you know, the late professor often told about jobs-to-be-done theory, and it deals with milkshakes, and so some of you might actually feel thirsty for a milkshake after this. Um, but there's a fast food company looking to increase sales of milkshakes. And so they got some consultants and um, they did focus groups. And a lot of people said, oh, we want the milkshakes chunkier. We want it um, to be more chocolatey fruits. Nobody wants a milkshake, yes. <laughs> oh, sorry. They did, they did all that and they weren't able to increase sales at all. Um, but, um, sorry about that. Don't do that. We forgive anything. Go ahead. I'll um, start one. <laughs> it's the first, uh, I think it's the first um, interruption we've had. So, you know, we were due for one. Okay. <laughs> no, thank, th thanks, guys. Uh, yes, Corona. Um, hey, so, it's life now. Uh, yeah, so, so, um, let me just make sure everything's good. Everything's good. Just a, a hungry baby, that's all. <laughs> um, and, and, and so they did all that and found out it wasn't, it wasn't working. Um, to sort of cut the long story short, 
they had a new set of consultants go into the uh, fast food restaurant and said, um, can you help us figure this out? And those uh, consultants went to the customers and says, why, why did you hire this milkshake? Why are you here buying a milkshake? And they realized a majority of the customers in the morning had long and boring commutes uh, to work and they needed something to keep uh, them interesting and they, the commutes interesting and they needed something to sort of uh, fill their stomachs uh, before, uh, before uh, lunchtime or at least a midday snack. Now they had hired bananas, but bananas were gone too long, uh, quickly and they just, uh, they, they were hungry uh, by 9 a.m. Uh, they had hired uh, Snickers, uh, but then they felt really guilty for eating the Snickers bar for breakfast. Uh, they had hired donuts and their hands would be all, you know, crummy with, with donut uh, uh, gooey and, and so on. And so just the experience wasn't great. Uh, they hired bagels. Um, and they were, they were like, how do I, you know, bagels are very nasty when you don't have cream cheese and you're trying to put cream cheese while you're driving and just terrible experience. Um, and so they had hired all these different products. But man, when they hired that milkshake, they were like, oh my gosh, it takes you about 20 to 30 minutes to suck the whole thing down through the straw. Um, and you, you, know, you realize where it actually fills me up till my midday snack. Um, you don't feel guilty uh, for, for having a milkshake, at least not as guilty as Snickers. Um, and, <laughs> and, and they found out that they were hiring the milkshake, not because they wanted it to be chocolatier or more fruity or so on, but for a long and boring commute. And so understanding the job to be done, why are customers hiring my product or service is critical if organizations are going to make, uh, be successful in actually designing um, products that help, help customers make progress in their lives. Okay, we're running out of time. We need to move on. But let, let me exclusively reveal to you the... Uh... The results of the audience poll, we asked the audience, is Tesla a disruptive innovation? And I can reveal now that the audience, 45% said yes, 55% said no. So just before we move on, Ifoza, what do you make of that? Is that, did they get it right? Oh man, you have a very intelligent audience. Yes, uh -huh. yes, yes. So, so Tesla, um, I'm glad, um, you know, more more than half actually said said uh, no. Um, Tesla is an innovative company, brilliant. But if you step back and think about the three types of innovations, right, and the customers that are being served, Tesla is serving the high end of the market. It's serving customers who are dissatisfied with the existing products and services. Most people can't afford a Tesla. It's a luxury product. Um, and so when you look at it from that standpoint, it's more of a sustaining uh, innovation than a disruptive innovation. Disruptive innovations start at the low end of the market or they serve people who they can't even think of affording the existing products or services because they're, they're too expensive. And so whenever you see a product that's fully featured and really exciting, but is often more expensive, uh, that's a first clue that is most likely not a disruptive uh, in innovation.
Thank you. Okay, well done, next audience. You did us proud. You got the answer right. For the 45% who said yes, I hope you've learned your lesson. Tesla is not a disruptive. Okay, thank you so much, Afosa. There's so much more we could talk about. That is all absolutely fascinating. But before we let you go, there's one last thing we need you to do. For the final time this season, it is our regular Next World interview. So let's roll the credits for Next World. They will travel far beyond the solar system to planet Next One. There they will establish a permanent base, a new society, a new home for human beings. Infosa, thanks to your outstanding achievements in the field of innovation, you have been chosen to be among the first 1,000 pioneers. But wow. before you undertake this journey, you must answer five questions. Let's see question number one. Name one luxury physical object you want to take to your new home. What would that um, be? Well, I, I think for me, this will be uh, indoor plumbing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now, you may not think it's so luxurious, but uh, try living without it. Now, over a couple billion people in the world don't have access to um, sort of decent indoor plumbing and sanitation. And I can tell you, it is a luxurious product. And I, I, I want to make sure I have indoor plumbing wherever <laughs> I'm going. And, and those other 999 people will come to your house for a shower. And, right? and, and, and then maybe I can um, I can charge a pretty penny. See? Hey, you've got a business model as well. <laughs> Very clever. <laughs> okay, question number two. Name one exceptional person and not your family or your new kid. Who comes along anyway? Name one exceptional person who should qualify to be among the first thousand pioneers. Well, um, I thought I thought long and hard about this one. I mean, I was going to say my wife, but you say not my family. So uh, uh, there's a guy by the name of Tim Mackey, uh, who uh, is uh, a friend and, and used to be um, a pastor of, of the church I used to attend. Um, he created something called the Bible Project. Um, but I just think he's a humble, brilliant uh, storyteller, uh, just a an amazing guy and I would definitely want him on that planet so, okay. so there's many dark nights on the new planet at least we have a very good storyteller I I yeah. think that's a good idea question number three create one law that bans something from next one forever and we've got theft and murder taken care of so the basic stuff but one law which one um you pay you pay for pollution <laughs> I mean, I think, I think, you know, when we look at what's going on in the world today um, and the, the, you know, we, we don't pay for pollution. And so we consume so much. Um, we do whatever we want and that's having an impact on, on our world. And so I think in this new world, um, I can't say no pollution because I don't know what that's going to be, but I think if you pay for pollution, um, then what happens is, you know, the governors of this new world are going to be able to invest to uh, keep the world uh, safe and people will think twice before consuming. Yeah. And you could have that law here as well, but interesting. So you've implemented the tax system right away from day one on your new planet, right? Oh, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. You pay for, you pay, 
you pay. It's yeah, exactly. going to be expensive. <laughs> All right, question number four. Explain one truth about human nature or one ethical principle to live by that you have learned yourself from experience. Yeah, this, this one, um, I think it's a saying. Um, I forget who actually said it, but it's be kind for everyone is fighting a hard battle. Right. I think it's easy to look at our circumstances and think, oh, man, my life is tough and things are hard. And then look at other people and maybe they have more fill in the blank, more money, more kids, more success. And they just having a good time. Um, but the one thing that I think is true about all of us, the one thing that really connects all of us together is this idea of struggle and, and how everyone wakes up and, and often struggles through life. So I would just say be kind because everybody is really fighting a hard battle you know, when it comes to leading a good life. I think so far out of our 10 you know, guests on the show, I think be kind. I mean, it has to be in the national anthem because that's a recurring theme. So the national anthem of Planet Next One will be be kind. We have a last question for you. Last week's pioneer was the head of innovation at Vice Media, Mark Adams. And he's got a big question for you. He wanted to ask you, if we're coming to the end of the era of liberalism, what is another system currently in our orbit that we can replace it with? Now, there's a question for you. <laughs> well, the, 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 it's, it's, it's a very, um, it's meaty. It's a meaty question. Um, but I think that one of the things the question does is it assumes we're coming to the end of an era of liberalism when I don't think we've gotten to liberalism at all. Right? Yeah. When you look at liberalism and what it is and what it means, you know, it's a, it's a philosophy based on liberty, um, you know, consent of the government and uh, people who are essentially equal under the law. Now, you know, some societies have done better uh, than others in, in getting there, but the vast majority of societies in our world have not gotten there. I mean, when I think about, um, and, and I mean, I'm, I'm part of the problem, right? I think about the things I consume and the people who make them. Um, when I think about racism, uh, when I think about modern day slavery, uh, it's really hard for me to, to, to say we have, we're, we're leaving a world of liberalism when we never quite got there. And so I would say, let's get to liberalism first. <laughs> then we can talk about leaving. Thank you for that excellent answer. All right. I think that's all we have time for this week. Thank you so much, Efosa, for being Thank you. Our it's my pleasure. This was so much fun. Yes. Thank you all. Over to Ina. Thank you so much. There was so much wisdom in there. I could listen to you for hours. Um, uh, yeah, so thank you so much. Before we part, I would love to hear what your plans are for the summer. Um, well, that's that's good. I, I, I'm, uh, I'm actually publishing a paper. Um, it should be coming out in a couple of weeks. So I'll send it to, to you, Monique, and maybe it would be of help to your your next um, um, audience. It's it's uh, um, uh, it's it's essentially how do we build resilience in a post COVID world? And it focuses on innovation 
uh, and you know, market creating and disruptive innovations. And how do we identify these opportunities? How do we evaluate them and how do we build them? And so um, hopefully that would be helpful for you. So professionally, that's a lot of what I'm doing. Um, also building a market creating innovation bootcamp. Um, so it's a sort of a more uh, detailed workshop on how to do um, disruptive and market creating innovations. So very excited about that too. Personally, um, I I just took a and I'm, I'm I'm not it's not as exciting personally because I just took a, a cross country trip in the U.S. My wife and I drove um, about six weeks ago to the West Coast, and uh, last week we drove back from the West Coast to Boston. That's about 47, 50 hours. So. Um, I've done my fair share of uh, summer. <laughs> uh, I, I would guess that personally, you have a new consumer in your house who will define the job to be done this summer. That's right? true. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's and you heard you heard from him. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, good luck with that one. Thank you. So thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Absolutely. It's a great pleasure having you. My pleasure. How about you, David Monique? What are your plans for the summer? Um, I, I've been in events for 20 years. This is the year that everything in events is changing. And, and strangely enough, I found it a super exciting creative time. And my plan is to, after organizing all these events, that I should write something about it. So anybody out there who says, I've got something special to share with you because I see something super interesting happening in the event space, tell me, you know. I'll be writing something about that. That's my plan for the summer. And of course, enjoying the rainy weather in Amsterdam. That's that's about it. <laughs> It'll change. It'll change. <laughs> no. How are you, David? Uh, yeah, I'll be enjoying the rainy weather in London. Um, <laughs> continuing to write my newsletter, New World, Same Humans, of course. Subscribe if you haven't subscribed already. Um, opening a little Slack group so that the members of the community can start to talk to each other. Uh, writing the chapter that I think I owe you guys at, at Next um, for the book that we're all going to put out called The Great Redesign, which collects uh, some great thinkers and writers in this book. And I, I owe my chapter, so I'll be concentrating oh, on that. It's just due next week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I think that will keep me busy, to be honest. And you, Ina, what, so, what are you going to do? Um, I'll be reading. Uh, all the uh, interesting stuff that, amongst others, David will write, and also Azim Azar and Payal Arora and Thomas Muller, Benedict Evans, for the book that we're going to publish in autumn that is put together by um, Next Conference founder Martin Recke, and also with your help. So thank you, Monique. Um, and I'm super keen to read that before we publish it. And if you want to learn more about that, you can just visit our website and get some information about that there. So I'll be reading while I'm on holidays for the first time, I don't know, in years, because there won't be a next conference this year, but there will be other interesting things. So we definitely see you somewhere in real life or online, I hope. So for now, it's time to say goodbye. And it's time to say thank you to David and Monique for co-hosting the uh, What's Next show, first episode or first season. 
Um, this show was made possible by our hosting partners, Accenture Interactive and Factor 3, and with support of the video platform 23 and our media partner T3M. So thank you for your support. And thank you for watching. So please let us know your thoughts. What did you think of our first season? Is it a good time slot for you? What would you like differently? Who do you want to see on the show in the future? Just let me know. Ina at nextconf.eu. Uh, I'll be keen to hear your thoughts. And also a big thank you to the lovely people providing us with video footage and to everyone involved in planning, organizing, and producing the show, especially to the next team who did an extraordinary job in the past weeks to pivot from an analog conference to a digital conference in this past weeks. So I hope to see you soon and have a great summer, everyone. All right. Are we going to park with yeah, again? Okay. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. We're looking forward to this. <laughs> no? Three. Oh, you're gone. Oh, oh, oh. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>